you, you probably have a general feeling uh, as a citizen of the United States, and if you pay attention to, to polls about how people feel about religion these days, uh, that we live in a country in which fewer and fewer people consider themselves to be religious. Not surprisingly, along, this, along with this, you'll hear people saying that there is no such thing as absolute moral standards. There's no moral absolutes. But in spite of this, we continue to make moral judgments about one another's behavior. It's wrong for police to shoot an unarmed person. It's wrong for people to riot and uh, to, to steal uh, material possessions. It's wrong, on one hand, people will say, to oppose same-sex marriage. It's wrong, on the other hand, people will say, to be for same-sex marriage. Hillary Clinton's positions are immoral, not just bad, but immoral. Donald Trump's positions are immoral. We're constantly making these moral judgments. Uh, there's a professor at the University of Toronto who recently said, Although I believe, and this is not on your sheet, although I believe values are socially constructed rather than God-given, I do not believe that gender inequality is any more defensible than racial inequality, despite repeated efforts to pass it off as a culture-specific custom rather than an instance of injustice. Now, what did she say? You didn't have that in front of you. She basically said moral values are socially constructed, that we just kind of come up with them, and they're not God-given. But then she turned around in the same breath and said, gender inequality is a universal moral value, excuse me, gender equality is a universal moral value that every culture should honor. Alright? She's essentially saying, your, your moral values are socially constructed. <laughs> but mine aren't. And therefore, you should abide by my moral values. Mine are true for everybody. We, we, we're constantly holding other people up to moral standards, but we don't want anyone judging our moral standards, which is why social media just turns into us yelling at each other all the time. You're stupid. No, you're stupid. And, and it's just kind of pointless at some point. So despite what we say... We believe in moral absolutes. We just don't want them to come from God. We believe in moral absolutes. We just don't want them to come from God. But if moral absolutes don't come from God, can there really be moral absolutes? What's to keep me from looking at your moral absolute and saying, why? Why? Why should I honor women? I don't, I don't feel like it. Why should I care about people of other races? I don't want to care about people of other races. Who says you're right? Why shouldn't I go all Pablo Escobar, the, the Colombian drug lord, and kill as many people as I can and make billions of dollars selling drugs to finance my lifestyle? You say, well, that's wrong. I say, why? Isn't it just survival of the, fit, of the fittest? I'm winning. You're losing? Too bad for you? What we're going to see today as we look at this text is that there is a basis for moral absolutes. But, but here's the thing. Those moral absolutes that exist apply not just to other people. They apply to me. And that creates a problem for other people. And it also creates a problem 
for me because I've fallen short of keeping these moral absolutes myself. So look with me. Uh, we are in on the wrong page. We are in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And I'm going to be reading verses 42 through 50. This is God's Word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We pray for us. Father, I pray that you give me help to handle this text faithfully and truthfully. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open our minds and our hearts so that we hear the things in your word and so that we are able to believe them and to live out of these things we believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, so here's where we're going with this. Because there are God-given moral absolutes, sin exists. Sin is real. Sin is dangerous. And we have to fight against it. Because there are God-given moral absolutes, sin is real, sin is dangerous, and we have to fight against it. So first of all, I want us to look in, in this text at the reality of sin, that sin is real. Jesus and maybe this is the most obvious thing you've ever heard said in a church. Jesus believed in sin. Okay? He, he believed there was such a thing as sin. Uh, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin. Verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin. Verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin. In Jesus' mind, sin is a very real thing, and as we'll see in a minute, a very dangerous thing. Uh, 2008, there was a Pew Research study in which 87% of people said they believed in the idea of sin. Now, along with that, only 52% believed that homosexual acts were sin, and 45% felt that sex before marriage was sin. Now, why is, there, why is there that discrepancy? Why are these things that biblically the Bible views as sin, but that many Americans no longer see as sin? What's the discrepancy from? Uh, Albert Moeller writes, and this is, I believe, found on your sheet. Surveys like this point to the fact that most Americans think of sin as acts against other humans or acts against the self, as in gluttony. When sin is seen only in this perspective, all that remains is a negotiable social etiquette. We still believe in sin for the most part as a, as a country, but we're defining it differently. We're defining it differently. Today we say that sins are things that harm other people, are there things that are harmful to ourselves. 
But what's missing from that definition? There's no reference to God in that. There's no reference to God in that. Uh, Following the Scriptures, the creeds of the church have defined sin this way. Sin is any want of conformity unto our transgression of the law of God. Now the New City Catechism, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, said that sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world He created. Rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him not being or doing what He requires in His law. Here's where all this culturally kind of leaves us. Uh, in some places, we're straying from where, you know, generally, from what God says about what sin is, as in the areas of sexuality. But in other places, because of our, our, our consciousness, because of the Christian capital that we're still kind of living off of as a culture, we're still trying to hold on to values. There, there are certain things that we would still say, well, yeah, that's wrong. It's wrong to steal. We're still holding on to those kind of things. But we have no basis for the values that we hold. We have no ultimate reason to hold these values any longer because we've taken God out of the picture. Let me give you an example of this. I was reading about a woman who is a, a public school teacher who was frustrated because she was given this character education material to teach to her, to her students. And she was supposed to teach things like justice and unselfishness and truth-telling. Like, don't, don't cheat on your tests. But she couldn't bring in any religious justification for why people should not do these things or why they should live in these ways. Which means, if the students awake long enough to think about it, they ought to be asking the question, well, why? Who, who says? Why should I be unselfish? Why shouldn't I te- cheat on my test? Why should I just leave the room and yell at you and, and give you the middle finger as I go? Like, who, who says that any of this is wrong? Why should I pursue these character traits? And she couldn't give them an answer. Because her hands were tied because she couldn't bring God into the equation. She could just say, well, some things are just right and some things are just wrong. Well, why? Where, where are you getting that from? Says who? Says who? We're schizophrenic when we try to, to say there are moral values, but then we turn around and say, but you can't bring God into this discussion of moral values. Which means, if you really think about it, we each get to define our own moral values. Uh, Which means Pablo Escobar was on the right path when he said, sometimes I am God. If I say a man dies, he dies that same day. I get to play God. You say, well, that's wrong. Says who? Says who? We're all God. We're all God. Uh, Is there any way then out of this moral schizophrenia, yes, to acknowledge that there is a God who has given us this law. Uh, One more Pablo Escobar quote just for fun this week. He said once, there can only be one king. And he was talking about himself, which was wrong, but his concept was right, wasn't it? There can only be, at the end of the day, one king. But that king is God. But if God is the king then I'm subject to Him. 
And I'm subject to His standards. And I don't get to make my own determinations about what's right and what's wrong. And neither do you. And on one hand, that's a good thing. Like, there is a source for these moral absolutes that that we know are out there. But it's also a, a bad thing in a way, a difficult thing for us, because these moral absolutes apply to me. They apply to me. They stand in judgment over me. And Scripture goes to great lengths to say that we've all fallen short when it comes to God's moral absolutes, that we've all sinned, that, that none is righteous. That is, as soon as I open my mouth to try to justify myself, Scripture immediately silences me. And what all this says is that sin is real. There is a God who, who does set a standard of right and wrong, a moral standard, and it is wrong, objectively, not just because we feel like it wrong, it's wrong. It is objectively wrong to murder, to steal, to ignore the fact that other people are made in God's image and to treat them poorly. We have an absolute basis for saying certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And we're not just left to this evolutionary free-for-all or Nietzschean power grab for everybody. But... These moral standards which do exist apply to me. They apply to you. It's not just other people who are sinners. I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. That's that's the reality of sin. Now secondly, the danger of sin. The danger of sin. You may say, okay, I I might buy that sin exists, but but what's the harm if it feels good? What's the harm if no one else is hurt? What's the harm if it's what I really want? Verse 42. uh, Causing a little one to sin, that's a big deal, Jesus says. Causing one of my disciples to sin, it would be better if someone hung a millstone around your neck, which is this big circular stone that that oxen would would push to, 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 to grind flour. It would be better if somebody hung one of those around your neck and threw you in the ocean, you'd be better off. If your hand causes you to sin, he says, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. What Jesus is telling us is that sin sets a trajectory for our lives. Uh, If if your parents never read to you when you're a child, that's setting a certain trajectory for your life. If if you uh, begin to abuse drugs and alcohol at an early age, that's going to set a certain trajectory for your life. If you make a habit in, in college of skipping all your classes and sleeping in late, That's going to set a trajectory for your life. Sin sets a trajectory, Jesus says. And the trajectory trajectory of sin always bends towards hell. The trajectory of sin always bends towards hell. Um, Sin sets a trajectory. Even as Christians, when we get caught up in sin, 
we're walking in the direction of hell. We're walking in the direction of hell. Uh, In someone who's truly been converted, who truly knows Christ, the Spirit is eventually going to turn you around. But our sin still brings hellish consequences into our lives. And Scripture warns us, even as we rest in God's grace, not to presume upon God's grace. The trajectory of sin always bends towards hell. Uh, Vince Gilligan, who's the creator of the television series Breaking Bad, once said, I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. Just it, his, something about the human condition convinced him that, that hell has got to be real. Now, interestingly, uh, another Pew study said that while 72% of Americans believe in heaven, only 58% believe in hell. Jesus, though, uh, Jesus, though, talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Jesus, full of love and grace, talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. He talks about it being a burning fire and, and misery and suffering. Hell is this consequence of our sin. It's a working out of what we say we want, that we want autonomy from God, we want independence from God, and that's in the sense what we get in hell. Cut off from everything but His wrath. No love, no joy, no friendship, no rest. It's the justice of God on full display directed toward those who have said, not thy will be done, but my will be done. Uh, there's a, a couple of quotes I want to read you on your, on your sheet there. The first one is from uh, Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. He writes, in short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. We see this process writ small, on a small scale, in addictions to drugs, alcohol, gambling, and pornography. First, there is disintegration, because as time goes on, you need more and more of the addictive substance to get an equal kick, which leads to less and less satisfaction. Second, there is the isolation, as increasingly you blame others in order to justify your behavior. No one understands. Everyone is against me is muttered in greater and greater self-pity and absorption. When we build our lives on anything but God, that thing, though a good thing, becomes an enslaving addiction, something we have to have to be happy. Personal disintegration happens on a broader scale. In In eternity, this disintegration goes on forever. And then from C.S. Lewis, you'll continue on your sheet, and I've read this before, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And then one more quote still on your sheet. This is from Keller again. Commenting on Lewis. The people in hell are miserable, but Lewis shows us why. We see raging like unchecked flames their pride, 
their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. All their humility is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. Why is sin so dangerous? Because all sins are committed ultimately against the holy God who will and must punish sin. Sin sets us on a trajectory for hell, a place of destruction, of disintegration, of pain, and punishment. It's the danger of sin. We see the reality of sin, the danger of sin, and finally I want to talk about our fight against sin. So if sin leads me towards hell... What's the only natural reaction to that? The only natural reaction is to get rid of anything in my life that might lead me towards sin. In very graphic language, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of heaven crippled, lame, with one foot and with one eye than to go to hell. It's very graphic language. Uh, it is, we need to say, it is hyperbole. Uh, Jesus is using graphic language to make a point. Some have taken this uh, literally. We're not to do that. I heard the story before of someone who, reading this, literally went and shot one of their eyes out with a BB gun to try to fight against lust. And then that didn't work, so they went and they shot the other eye out as well and found out that that didn't really work either. It, it doesn't solve the problem to do that because what has Jesus told us earlier in Mark? That's why we have to interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. Earlier in Mark, he says, evil act, sin, ultimately comes out of your heart. It comes out of your heart. That's the source of it. But what's the big deal? I mean, what's the point here? Sin, Jesus says, is a big deal. And you need to attack it like you would attack cancer. You don't say when you find out you have cancer, I'll go see the doctor in a week or two. Maybe in two or three months, I'll, I'll go check in with them. Uh, if you're sitting on your couch watching the game and the other end of the couch catches on fire, you don't say, I'm going to watch the end of the game first. Unless it's Auburn, unless you get in the mic. But, 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 but no, you, you get up because the couch is on fire. While I was writing this sermon, in this particular pot, a spot, a spider like dropped out of somewhere onto my leg. And I didn't sit there and say, well, I'm going to finish writing this point first. I, I attacked the spider, okay? And I don't know where it is, but it got attacked. Um, nothing, not an eye, not a leg, not an arm, not anything, is worth hanging on to if it leads you to hell. And Jesus says, you have to attack it and attack it viciously. Now, on one level, I think this is an admonition to us to be careful about what we do and where we go. And what we look at. There may be magazines you just can't subscribe to that other people do because they lead you to covet. There may be places that you can't go without tripping up. But I think that's kind of a, honestly kind of a superficial read of this text. Because I think what Jesus is doing is he's pressing us. You've got to deal with sin. You can't just baby it. You can't just 
ignore it. But He's also showing us that the cause of sin is in me. It's my eye. It's my hand. It's my foot. And these all lead me into sin, but they lead me into sin because they're connected ultimately to my heart. And the desires of my heart drive the behavior of my eyes and my hands and my feet. And how in the world do you deal with a sinful heart? I mean, you you can't really cut out a sinful nature by amputation at the end of the day. So what do you do? So what do you do? I got to stop here because I think you have to go in two different directions with this text. Because I think this text speaks to believers and unbelievers differently. And so first I want to think about for a second, how does this speak to the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ? What does it say to them? I think what it says, and if you're not a believer in Christ, I know this isn't pleasant to hear, but I want to present just what the Bible says accurately to you. It says to you that, that you, like me and like all the rest of us, have a sin problem. And that this sin problem is dangerous to your soul and it will lead to hell unless something is done about it. But it's such a part of you that you can cut out your eye and cut off your hand and cut off your foot and you still won't be able to get rid of it. There's no cure in you. You can't cure it. And you say, okay, thanks, Justin. That's helpful. Um, Help me out here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says very similar things. And it's helpful, I think, what He says before the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed Blessed are those who realize they are sinful and foul and vile and on a trajectory for hell because that's who God in Jesus Christ came to save. That Jesus came to save people who realize their own sinfulness. As Paul says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The guy who wrote a big chunk of the Bible. Thank God that He came in the world in Jesus Christ to save sinners of whom I am and the worst. And so on the one hand, this passage, if you don't know Christ, should have kind of a law-like function in your life to help you see your inability, to help you see your spiritual sickness, and to turn to the only doctor who can make you well, to show you your sin and drive you to Christ, to cause you to to despair of of being able to fix anything yourselves. Um, Because we live in the age of Google and YouTube, there are a lot of things I'll try to fix around the house or on my car that 20 years ago I never would have thought about trying to do because I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. But now I can go watch somebody on a YouTube video and like, oh, I think I might be able to do that. And sometimes that works out, but sometimes you guys have tried this. You get a little ways into this, like, I really shouldn't have done this. Like, I thought I could do this looking at this video, but I really can't do this. And I have to go find somebody that can take care of it. That's what this passage should do for you if you don't know Christ. It's showing you that you have a sin problem and that all your efforts in Googling how to fix it and take care of it and go to counselors or whatever, it's not going to fix it. That Jesus is the only one who can do anything about this. And so it kind of shoves you into the corner and leaves you helpless. 
says, what are you going to do? And then offers you Christ. He says, here's a solution to your sin problem. Now, so this works on two levels. Here's the other, other level it works on. It also speaks to believers. And I think it speaks to believers in a, in a slightly different way. Because I think this is a, is, a, is a beautiful image of what Paul tells believers to do in Romans chapter 8. Now Romans chapter 8, uh, in verse 1, Paul says to believers, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's your foundation. You have to believe this first. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then he says in verse 13, to believers, to professing believers, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so in Romans, Paul is saying part of the point of our salvation is that we might put sin to death, that we're given the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. And that, that we, are, we are saved in order to holiness. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved to do good works. And that we're given the Holy Spirit to enable this. And that we have a responsibility in this, he says, to put sin to death. Or the old, I think the King James language was mortified, if you ever use that. To mortify sin. To kill sin at the level of my thoughts, the level of my words, at the level of my actions, at the level of my desires. And he says, if you don't, if you aren't about the business of doing this, you will die. To combine it with what Jesus says, it's better to put sin to death than to go to hell. It's better to put sin to death than to go to hell. Now that, I hope that seems a little odd to you. That seems like an odd thing to say to a believer. But he does this because while God would have us to rely on his grace, he would not have us to presume upon his grace. Just because you have grown up in the church or raised your hand at a revival or said, yes, I believe in Jesus at some time, just because you have said that doesn't mean there's actually been a true work of grace in your heart. Because someone who's truly experienced the grace of God, someone who's truly been converted, is still going to be a sinner, yes, and and hear me say that plainly, but there has to be growing in that person a growing hatred for sin and a growing desire to put sin to death. Taking up arms, as it were, against sin, uh, like, a, like a gardener takes up, takes up gardening tools against English ivy uh, or, or, or kudzu. Sin is an invasive species. And if you're a believer, you begin to see it more and more as that. And while a Christian may neglect the garden for a time, so to speak, if, if they have the Spirit, the Spirit will convict them of sin and bring about a, a striving after holiness in their lives again. Let me see if I can if I can illustrate this, and I hope this helpful is helpful. Uh, be- before you know Christ, it's like you're on an escalator for hell. Like like that's just where you're headed. That's where your life is taking you. In conversion, it's like you're switched over to the up escalator, and you're on this escalator now for heaven. But due to remaining sin, we still have this tendency every once in a while to kind of look over at the down escalator and say, eh, we don't see where it's going, we just see the immediate pleasure on it. And we hop over there for a little bit. 
Now, if the Spirit of God is at work in us, we may head down that for a while sometimes, but eventually the Spirit gets a hold of you and pops you back over on that up escalator. But it's possible to be a Christian in name only, in which case you just keep riding further and further and further into sin and into the judgment for our sin. Uh, some of you were, were sharing with me recently about a dear friend who's a professed believer who had carried on a multi-year affair with another professed believer. And it was devastating to everybody involved. And everybody kind of has that question in the situation like, it's like, well, are they really Christians? Were they really converted? And my answer was, well, they could be because Christians mess up really badly. We are still sinners. But what I would want to see is what do they do next? Having had their sin exposed, what do they do next? Do they repent? Will they renew their faith in Jesus? Or are they going to continue down that down escalator? Uh, another way to think about this indwelling sin in the life of a believer, John Owen used the image of a forest to describe sin in our lives. He said, some, before somebody is converted, it's like your life is just this dense jungle of weeds and trees and thorns and brambles. The ground's completely covered. There are no clearings. There's no sunlight getting in. After conversion, sin no longer has dominion over you. The forest begins to be cleared, but it's not completely clear. Uh, he says that many of the trees and some of the underbrush they have been uprooted. Some of those things that had held the men in your life, they are done away with. There are these clearings. Some of the towering sins have been removed, but then there are things that don't seem to have been touched at all. And he says the normal Christian life, and you have to understand this, the normal Christian life is dealing with those residual trees that still exist in all of our forests. And battling with remaining indwelling sin. The spiritual life involves this continual work of fighting against the weeds there. Uh, Opening up larger clearings. Discovering trees that we didn't even know were there that we have to to work at. He says, remove as many branches and cut away as much undergrowth as possible if you can't quite uproot it. But fight against your sin. That's what putting sin to death looks like. Clearing uprooting, burning leaves. And if you and I aren't active in that, that stuff grows back. That stuff grows back. That's what the normal Christian life is. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do, to be serious about that sin that we see in our lives. Uh, Notice in this, and and I've got a couple more quotes for and then we're going to wrap up, that mortification of sin, putting sin to death, is not passive. It's not passive. It's done in faith in Jesus, but it's not passive. And I think this is where many believers, where we tend to drop the ball. Look at the, look at the next quote on your sheet. Sanctification has slowly become a passive act for many of us. We binge on entertainment, scroll endlessly on social media, neglect prayer, and put off Bible reading, hoping that over time we will miraculously become holier. The problem is that Paul doesn't say time makes us holier. He never writes, if you get older, you will live. Old age doesn't kill sin. 
If you make peace with your sin and hope that time or age kills it, it will only grow more twisted and perverted. The, the Christian's life of sanctification is an active life of sanctification. Uh, as Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then one last quote from Owen I just wanted you to see to, to kind of rattle around your heads a little bit on your sheet. Bring your lust to the gospel. Not for relief. Now we do bring it for relief eventually, but he says that's not what you jump to to start with. But for further conviction of its guilt, look on him whom you have pierced and be in bitterness. Say to your soul, what have I done? What love? What mercy? What blood? What grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love? To the Son for his blood? To the Holy Ghost for his grace? Do I thus requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that the blessed Spirit has chosen to dwell in? And can I keep myself out of the dust? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? How shall I hold up my head with any boldness before Him? Do I account communion with Him of so little value that for this vile lust's sake I have scarce left Him any room in my heart? How shall I escape if I neglect so great a salvation? My question for you this morning is, is one, have you cast yourself on Christ? Have you seen the, da- the reality and danger of your sin? Have you cast yourself upon Jesus Christ for forgiveness? And having done that, having done that, are you taking an active role in fighting against sin, in exposing it, in killing it? Are you meditating on the Scriptures, memorizing Scriptures that relate to your particular struggle, and are you doing all this Independence on the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I don't think, I mentioned a spectacular sin. I don't think the danger for most of us is falling into some spectacular sin. I think the real danger is for people just to slowly drift away like a boat sitting next to a, to a dock that's not been tied. Hebrews 2, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Don't drift. Don't drift. By faith, take up the Word of God and listen to Jesus. By faith, cry out in prayer to Jesus for strength to fight against sin. By faith, take the bread and the wine that you might be strengthened and renewed in your fight and in your walk with Christ. By faith, through the Spirit, mortify the English ivy in your life. Sin is real. Sin is dangerous. But Jesus has given you His Spirit so that you can put it to death. Go forth and kill it. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, that we would not simply be convicted, but I pray that we would that we would quit taking sin and disobedience so lightly that we would be enamored in your grace, that we would see what Jesus really has accomplished, that he really has rescued us from something awful. And seeing that he has given us us his spirit and calls us now to do the work of putting sin to death, uh, would you help us to do that and to be serious about that? Would you uh, help us to find victory even in freedom uh, over these tangling sins in our lives? We pray it in Christ's name.